Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about the Scheherazade job. Hopefully, I will be able to say that correctly every time it comes up. Tara Kennedy is back with me. Hi, Tara. Hello. Welcome. You haven't been on since the finale of season two, right? Yeah. So at least four or five episodes. This episode aired on June 27th, 2010. It was directed by Peter Winther, and Chris Downey wrote this one. It's been a while since he got writer credit on an episode. And especially without John Rogers, who I think was away when they were filming most of it, too. So he got to watch it as a fan instead of as somebody who was show running, which is pretty cool. So in this episode, the West African country of Wadata has an honest president, but his brother runs a blood diamond mine, and then he smuggles the diamonds into the U.S., and he's also a snitch for the CIA. And on top of all that, he wants to replace his brother in the next election. The team has to undermine his campaign and reveal his corrupt practices with the help of a Stradivarius violin. This, this episode starts with Alexander Moto, who's played by... Giancarlo Giuseppe Alessandro Esposito, who is from Copenhagen, Denmark, originally. His dad was an Italian carpenter slash stagehand from Naples, and his mother was an African-American opera singer from Alabama. Which I'm just like, that is just a really cool duo. And he has the most Italian name. Well, and it was interesting because I was thinking about it. I feel like when this episode aired, what I mostly knew him from was Homicide Life on the Streets, where he was the the chief's son who had taken a federal job. You know, so he was mostly good. And, yeah. And this one, he's less oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like now most people know him for play. Yeah, kind of. Less good or, you know people so it's it's less of a surprise mm -hmm. you're like oh this feels right well he's uh been in everything like if you just go to his imdb page you just scroll down and down and down and down and down and he's uh friends with tim hutton and they did a couple episodes of uh, a nero wolf mystery um that show that he was on well just one episode of that and they'd had another i think a movie that they did together so, oh, he was in an episode of Touched by an Angel. I love going back to the late 90s, early 2000s, and just seeing how many people were on Touched by an Angel. It's a lot. It's a lot of them. So, this episode starts with Alexander Moto feeding cake to rich white men, which I thought was interesting, very, I don't know, Marie Antoinette of him. And he's bragging about his country, Wadata's, they're rich resources. They've got diamond mines. They just discovered an oil field off the coast. And he says his brother, however, even though he's a great president, he's not able to get good investors into their country. And he's confident that when he becomes president, that he'll be able to bring in these investors and develop their nation. These guys can get in on the ground floor. And he's also mentioned that he's taking out the competition which we see is this reporter that he's targeted uh, and he almost kills her name is Jane Akinyemi and her poor little crappy car gets its door <laughs> torn off by a speeding car that was supposed to kill her so I guess that's better than than dying 
and we have Hardison and Elliot showing up at the bar, and they're both coming in the door together, and neither of them wants to give way for the other one. And they're arguing about, like, why are you here? Why are you here? And I love um, Elliot's reason for being there is that he has some background in this sort of issue that Jane is having uh, with, like, corrupt politicians in African countries. Uh, but Hardison's there because he wants to shadow Nate because he has ambitions to run his own crew one day, which is going to be, you know, we've seen the seeds of this being planted and it's like an ongoing running arc of this show. But I found it really interesting that he's like, I'm going to run my own crew. And I wonder if he's like, my crew is going to do exactly what we do. We're going to do good things for people who have had bad things happen to them. Or if he's just like, I'm going to be a criminal again and do this. Do you think he's just, we're going to continue this Robin Hooding and just I feel like get off? plan is to keep Robin Hooding. He's just considering himself a franchise. <laughs> yes. Yes, he would totally do that. And he, he mentions, he's like, I can do everything they all do. I can con, I can steal, I can hack, I can plan. And Elliot's like, can you fight? Uh, but then he, but he says, no, I have a dog for that. <laughs> His name's Megabyte. <laughs> Which is such a great name for a hacker's dog. He's a great hacker dog name. In the commentary, Aldous Hodge. Aldous Hodge has been in almost every episode, like commentary episode of season three, which is just wonderful. Uh, and he says, yeah, but if we ever saw the dog, it'd, be, it'd end up being like a Yorkie or a Shih Tzu, just some tiny dog that couldn't actually help. No, that's true. Because Hardison, Hardison would absolutely go to the shelter with the intention of getting a big scary dog, and then he would fall in love with Yes. I want it to be like a really ugly mutt fluff. It's like a Yorkie Shih Tzu Chihuahua. It's just like hideous. It's got patches of fur falling off, and just a face only a mother could love. That works. Is this one? Yeah, Nate says, you know, you don't, you can't do what I do. Like, you can't run a crew the way that I do. And, and Hardison wants to know why. But of course, Nate brushes him off because Jane shows up and she's telling him about, or telling them about the conditions of the kids who work in Moto's diamond mines, where it's awful. And you, if you make your quota for the day, you get a dollar fifty. And if you don't, you don't get paid. And Hardest or Elliot says, and it's even worse. Like if you get out of the diamond mines, then you you have a machine gun in your hands and you're recruited for the rebel army. So these poor like kids in this country are just between a rock, very hard rock, and a hard place. Uh, and he says he like has fought in these countries, so he's really seen this firsthand. And this episode really, we kind of see the shadows and like the ghosts of Elliot's past a little he's to to borrow from the Avengers he's got like some red in his ledger and he's trying to get it out which is not something that I remembered from my last rewatch I didn't remember that kind of element to his character but it's really nice to see it here uh, we find out that Moto smuggles his diamonds into the US then he launders them through his real estate holdings in Boston and he's doing this to save up money for the election and Jane promises, or like, she's sure that the president himself is not a bad man, but Moto's really smart and he covers his tracks well. 
You gotta be really, really smart if you're gonna be able to cover your tracks like that from your brother. I think it's just... I think there's also a distance thing, um, in effect, that he's doing a lot of the truly obvious stuff in the U.S. where his brother just doesn't see. I also felt like this was one of the episodes where it was really clear to me how social media has changed, how we um, consume news from afar that, you know, the kinds of things that might take a little longer if you're relying solely on traditional news sources for you to hear about um, become a little bit more obvious, I think, in this episode. But yeah, I also do think, I um, I mean, I really love this episode, but I do think there's a couple places where you're like, eh, you know, I feel like <laughs> they would have gotten onto that by now. Yeah, but all right. he's, he's running the whole country. It's not that I mean, big of I a mean, country. <laughs> countries require a lot of, a lot of detail work, so, you know, maybe yeah. he just... You don't have time, time to go. Yeah, you don't have time to go check up on every single business being run in a country. And and if Moto is as smart as we're supposed to think he is, he knows when his brother's going to come, and he can clean things up and have it look all in the up and up when he's being, you know, toured or um, investigated. And and later we do find out a little more about him. He was sent off to boarding schools. He doesn't even speak his own native language, so he's not really of the people. Uh, and so I think you're right. I think there is like a distance between him and his brother that he could pull the, the wool over his eyes. Um, and yeah, no, the social media thing, so true. And it's crazy because it hasn't even been a decade since this Yeah, I mean, that was show just aired. one of those things. They're already, you know, just from the first season where they were still using flip phones, like, you know, they're already using smartphones in this season yeah and and so it already feels like that much closer and then you're like oh right but yeah no they clearly <laughs> clearly like no one's checking twitter yeah <laughs> this has not gone viral yet <laughs> that's weird yeah they you know during the reunion episode we see hardison on on a like a facebook type social media page but it's it's evident that it's still new enough that not everybody's already on it because otherwise they wouldn't have gotten away with like nobody would have thought that Nate was the character he was playing right when he showed up and was playing the popular dude so yeah no it is the just the how rapidly and drastically social media has changed how we you know absorb the news and and our world around us what a nice little time capsule this show is <laughs> <laughs> they ask Jane, like, why hasn't she taken this to the government? Why hasn't she taken this to the Justice Department? Because this guy is obviously, like, she has found out that he is smuggling these diamonds in and laundering them. And she says she did, and they started an investigation and with all the information she gave them, but then they just stopped. And she doesn't know why. And Nate knows exactly how he's going to find out why they stopped and he contacts the Italian and that's all we know her as so far uh, who was in the middle of a date <laughs> with a with a fugitive who's no longer a fugitive so I wonder if no maybe that Tinder didn't exist then she's just using Tinder to take out fugitives it was probably still like Craigslist oh my gosh 
Can you imagine a woman like her on Craigslist? <laughs> That's amazing. Uh <laughs> Just misconnections on Craigslist. <laughs> I was the beautiful Italian. You were the fugitive on the run. Let's meet up. <laughs> and he, so he contacts the Italian. <laughs> Who also asks him to have dinner, like, finish dinner with her, and he has this great, like, flash to what would happen if he had dinner with her, and it's him being choked while she just watches, kind of unimpressed. Uh, but she lets him know that Moto has a side job giving the CIA names of terrorists in West Africa. Then we jump back to... Leverage headquarters, and Elliot's pissed that this is happening. Sophie points out that these terrorists that he's giving up are probably actually just his political rivals, and this is an easy way to just clear that playing field, which is true and awful. Just here, CIA, take these people who might want to do a good job for my, my country and get them out of my hair. Ugh. They, they keep looking into his real estate holdings because that's where all of his money is kind of held in the US and they're all, he bought them at the top of the market so he's you know, his only real money is coming in through these smuggled diamonds and they're all that's keeping him from going bankrupt actually which, that's just not very good investing I think the housing bubble, you know, took a lot of people by surprise <laughs> Oh, that's true. That's true. That's another thing to keep in mind when you're watching this. And they'll mention it sometimes. Like, oh, the economic crisis. Not even this wheat manufacturer, you know, did well. Uh, Nate, Nate asks, do you know what the best thing about smuggled diamonds is? And so he's like, oh, oh, I know. It's the way they shine in the moonlight on a billionaire's yacht. <laughs> Which is not true. It's been I mean, the best thing do about shine in the light. <laughs> they, I'm, I am sure that they do. And then I'm like, I want to read that side story, just that little tiny novella of younger, younger Sophie just on a billionaire's yacht with smuggled diamonds, um, and then disappearing with them, and like they have no idea what happened to her. Actually, the best thing about smuggled diamonds is that they're uninsured. So if they go missing, you're not getting your money back. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to make those diamonds go missing. If these diamonds go missing, then his political career is donezo. Because he won't be able to pay for it. He'll be bankrupt. It's basically the end of him for real. So Parker is on her tour of Alexander Moto's real estate properties. So he owns a concert hall, but it has foundations like a bank, like really thick foundations. And that has also recently had a lot of security upgrades. So they reason this is probably where he's keeping his vault full of his diamonds. And there's actually a dedicated air system, which is a Glenn Reader, and which is, you know, a reference to the writing team Glenn and Reader, which we've had before. Uh, a lot of the the safes and the vaults are named for them. And yeah, this dedicated air system is used specifically when storing delicate items like a Stradivarius violin worth four and a half million dollars that he has just purchased. I cannot imagine just being, well, no, I can imagine wanting to buy that. And if I had that money, I would totally do that. Okay, so I take it back. I can imagine. 
Uh, and it turns out that Moto has become kind of a patron of the arts because he it's his way of getting in with the old money Bostonians, which I hear a very tough group of people to crack. Like, as we mentioned before, he was educated abroad. So he went to school in England and then he went to college at Harvard. So, you know, he's like identifies more with this kind of Ivy League sentimentality than he does his own people. And like we said, doesn't even speak his native language. And uh, if he wants to become the president of this country, he's going to need the approval of the people of Wadada. And Elliot says a lot of stuffed ballot boxes. Which he's definitely not above doing. And then we get our let's go steal. We're gonna let's go steal uh, the man in the the man on the street. Dot dot dot. In Africa. (laughs) Uh, But first, before they uh, the con really begins, Hardison and Elliot get to make up some fake news. Kind of in the era before fake news had a capital F and capital N. And they do this to put Moto in a bad light. I loved the the green screen work they were doing here with Elliot like walking in front of a what is later like an angry crowd. And his character the name is from the Year of Living Dangerously, I think. Yes. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Uh, with uh, Mel Gibson's character, yeah, in The Year of Living Dangerously, Guy Hamilton. But also, someone pointed out, um, Guy Hamilton was also the director of Diamonds Are Forever. Oh. And three other James Wan films, which I think is interesting well, as well. Since more interesting, I think. Yeah, I'm like, eh, well, Mel Gibson, no thank you. But, <laughs> I mean, for the most part, for me, James Bond, no thank you. But that's, like, that diamond connection is interesting. But yeah, and this was the part where I was like, you know, this would work for like five minutes and now and yeah. then, you know, he would freak out and then like he'd be able to see that nobody else <laughs> in Wadada was reporting this. Right, and right. It would be done and, and the con would be done. So thank goodness they did the they got this episode <laughs> in before Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. Made this impossible. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, people have found other ways to fake news, but I feel mm-hmm. like this this particular methodology would have been tougher. Exactly. And then on leverage, there's a lot of like, you know, we talked about hand waving where you're just like, right. no, it's just the, it's part of the con. It's part of the episode of the magic of the show. But this is something definitely that's kind of glaring. Like, that'd be pretty easy to just check another channel like what is Al Jazeera saying what is CNN saying who else is reporting on this oh no they they didn't notice this okay I guess they're not really rioting in this in Wadada or just checking people's Instagrams (laughs) I'm in downtown Wadada today look there's no one marching in the streets Uh, but unfortunately this is not the case so poor Moto who is Skyping with his brother uh is denying everything about this and he says and it's so good because it really just reveals his character to his brother he says you know you sit on that throne in the presidential palace and you think you're better than me and he's like my job is to serve the people and the fact that you think that i sit on a throne is really bad like that's really problematic and that tells me a lot about what your motives are and then he hangs up on him (laughs) <laughs> and 
he's he's angry and he tells his you know he's yelling at his bodyguard uh, and his bodyguard tells him that this woman named Christy Connolly has called offering to fix his image and we'll get to Christy Connolly in a second but I want to talk about this bodyguard whose name is Namdi um, Asomuga I, I hope I'm saying that correctly who uh, was, is like a um, all pro de- uh, defensive back from LA uh, he played for the Oakland Raiders and maybe yes the philadelphia eagles you're right and he was a professional football player and you know an actor as well because why not he also has a degree in corporate finance from berkeley oh well that seems very smart if you're going to be a professional athlete yeah actually right it's like this guy's a triple threat (laughs) um and he is an actor actually that seems like a really good choice yes (laughs) man namdi good job so yeah, so he is really good in this role. I I just think he's wonderful. He's very easy on the eyes, but also he does a great like West African accent. He's uh he was born in Louisiana, but his family is from Nigeria. And they they met him who is it? I think Chris Downey said he met him at a at a hockey game, like at an LA Kings game because they had the same agent. And the agent was like, hey, I have tickets to this game. Like, come. And then they met and he was like, oh, hey, I'm, yeah, I do some acting too. Um, and I'd love, you know, if you have anything. But like, he goes, can you do a West African accent? <laughs> and he said, yes. And so he's like, oh, I'm going to, if I can get you on the show, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so that's how he's on. And he gets to use his uh, football, his football know-how in a little bit too. And now we come back to Christy Connolly, who we've met before. This is Sophie's alter ego. She's a journalist the first time we met her in The Miracle Job. And here she is. uh, She's in perception management, uh, which is awful and fascinating. And there are definitely people out there who do this, right? Uh, It's sort of like what Olivia Pope does on Scandal. But uh, this is Gina Bellman getting to use her actual Kiwi accent. And she tells Moto that she wants to turn him into a hero, not by spending tons of money and doing lots of big charitable things, but by saving one single person, because this will kind of amplify or magnify how awesome he looks. And it'll be cheaper. And this person that they are going to kind of save or lift up is going to be played by Hardison. He will be playing a young man named Temi who came from Wadada, uh, who's a violin prodigy, but he drives a cab to support his family while he dreams of playing in the Philharmonic. Hardison actually played the violin until he was 14, and that's when he realized you could look up naked pictures of girls on the internet. And so he <laughs> his interests changed. <laughs> What I love about this is that Aldous Hodge was learning the violin at the time. This is a 23-year-old man who's just like, I want to learn the violin. And and so he had, it, he mentions two separate teachers that he has in, in the commentary. Uh, and he'd been playing for several years at this point. And and uh, Christiani knew that. So he's like, I'm going to work that into an episode one day. And then they had him play this very difficult piece <laughs> that we'll talk well, about in a minute. 
And I feel like I had heard somewhere that he had actually challenged them, like, could you figure out a way to make Ferguson have to play the violin? I don't know if that's the kind of story that people say afterwards, like, oh yeah, I, t- I totally made them do that. <laughs> yeah. I, but I can see Aldous Hodge just hearing him talk to the guys on the commentary. Like, I can see him going, hey, this is a talent that I have. You should totally... I I wonder if you could work it in, like, you know, kind of sliding well, in there, but also being like, you know, I bet you can't. Right. I was listening to um, Aline Brash McKenna, who was one of the co-creators of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and she said, like, by, like, season three... Um, they they knew to ask everyone that they hired like do you do something cool that we should know about but that also people who had been on the show for a while but who maybe you know hadn't had a chance to shine yet would sort of be like oh by the way I don't know if it helps but I'm great at hacky sack (laughs) (laughs) they're like not right now but I can make it happen (laughs) they're like okay I will keep that in mind and so I, I think that's the kind of thing like I could sort of see that happening that he would be like oh yeah no it turns out I've been learning violin for three years like yeah it'll be useful but just FYI (laughs) which I mean if you follow I don't know if you do but if you follow Aldous Hodge on any social media like this guy like does everything he's like oh I'm really into building watches like who is into building watches that's fascinating he's like oh yeah I draw here's like a painting I made and you're like who are you? <laughs> and, and he's like, and I'm, I'm also always in the gym working out. Like, you can't be all of these things. It's not fair. <laughs> right. Seems like a lot. A lot for one person. Yeah, it seems like maybe you got more than your fair share of things, is all I'm saying. Uh, actually, no, I'm not, not complaining about Aldous Hodge at all, because he's wonderful, and he should continue to be whatever he wants to be. So... Uh, Temi, when he meets Moto, he manipulates him into showing him the Stradivarius, uh, and this way they they get into the vault, and you know they they kind of Parker can see the lay of the land, and she can hopefully plan how they're going to break in. Unfortunately, she's super impressed by the vault, which is not something we see from Parker very much because she's usually like, I can do that in my sleep. Uh, this vault is a state-of-the-art Glen Reader. It works on motion sensors. That's why there are no video cameras anywhere. And it's unhackable. So the only time that they've ever turned it off was when the symphony was playing the 1812 Overture, which if you've heard the 1812 Overture, <laughs> you know that's going to set off some, you know, some motion sensors. Uh, which means that right in the middle of this con, Nate decides we're going to have to change the play. And Temi is going to play in the con- in a concert that's going to be broadcast to the rural areas of Wadata because those areas don't have TV or newspapers, I guess. Uh, but they do have the radio. And so if they can hear that, oh, you know, our f- this guy who's running for president has helped this, you know, deserving young man out, they're going to they're going to like that. They're going to want to vote for him. Uh, Hartisan obviously is freaking out because he hasn't played the violin since he was 14. <laughs> and he's not only going to have to play, but he's going to have to play amazingly uh, in front of people on a four and a half million dollar instrument. 
Well, and it was sort of an interesting change because usually Hardison is the one who's like, oh my gosh, I can totally do this. Like, yeah, you know, I can be a diamond expert. I can be a whatever, yeah. you know, I can be anything like, and this time he's like, nope. <laughs> I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Sorry for the people of Wadada. <laughs> I feel. I really feel for them. Really, I do. Uh, I can't do it. Yeah, like, and totally. Like, he's not even just like, oh, I can do that, but also like, I already did that. Like, you don't even appreciate all of this difficult thing. These difficult things that I've already done. <laughs> like, I made us all these backgrounds. Like, all of these identities. Like, he just has met this one thing that he's like I can't do this <sighs> yeah no I don't blame him um so and and Nate he's freaking out like this after he's like come down from upstairs and Nate chastises him some chastises him for taking a nap and you know saying well I thought you were super scroll <laughs> or he says super skull and then Hardison has to explain who Super Skrull is, which I looked up. So if you don't know anything about Super Skrull, uh, he's actually a character who's a villain. And so maybe Hardison shouldn't have chosen him as the per person he wants to embody. But he does have all of the same powers of the Fantastic Four. Um, he's not good, though. I do like the Skrull, but this guy's not good. And the Skrull in general are not good. Moving on from those nerdy things, though to the rest of this nerdy show. Sophie shows up and she says that she's just helped Moto choose the uh, the piece that they're going to play. Also, this is super fast turnaround. Like, this, is, this is like the next day. And they're going yeah, to... Yeah, it sort of seemed like somehow like they had gone from, you know, you will help this guy play violin or... You know, learn, have time to learn violin or something. Too, we are going to put on a concert tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah, and it might be a little further out because I, man, now I'm just thinking of this. Jane says that uh, President Simeon Moto is coming to visit his brother in two weeks or ten days or something, and that's going to cement him as the heir apparent. So maybe they do have that little bit of a gap, but they've already had a couple days where they've been building these characters and doing the fake news. So there is only, there can possibly only be a couple days that they turn around. And we were talking earlier about like museum exhibits and how they must have to plan those out like years in advance. That has to be something similar for symphonies and orchestras because even though these are professional musicians, sight reading, <laughs> maybe not great. Right. Like, yeah, it does not, I mean, for all of Hardison's freaking out, which is justified if unusual for Hardison, um, but it made far less sense to me that the rest of the orchestra would be like, sure, we'll play this super hard piece on Tuesday. We've got nothing better going on. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, maybe that's just how orchestras are they're just like well this this is just work i've played shahrazad a billion times so maybe it's just playing this thing that i already know or yeah i mean if it was already in their repertoire for the season um you know i mean there's yeah i mean i i realize the availability of the orchestra is kind of a thing you have to just sort of hand wave away but yeah yeah <laughs> well then i mean if you go even further in it which why not this is why we have this podcast but like 
the availability of the orchestra, the time to practice, the the booking of the performance hall because it might be booked for another thing that they were going to be performing. Uh, the can't like the ad work and the campaign, you know, ad right, campaign, like, so, like, so people knew to come. Have time to show up. And t- I mean, maybe you know they have enough season ticket holders, and they were like surprise performance. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's mind blowing, but it happened. <laughs> it happened somehow uh, you know, and it does perform miracles on a regular basis it's true it's true and so the piece that sophie has helped moto choose is shahrazad which is by uh, korsakov and i love she tells the she kind of tells a abbreviated story of who shahrazad is you know, she's the main character sort of in A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. She was the Sultan's latest bride because he would marry a woman and kill her in the morning, which like, if you don't want to be married, just don't marry people. That always blew my mind. If you're marrying people just to have an heir, if you kill them after the first night, that's not going to work. But and, and you can't apply logic to men sometimes. So... Uh, <laughs> So she, she marries him and tells him a story every night and leaves him on a cliffhanger so he can't kill her in the morning because he wants to find out what happens next. And after finally a thousand and one nights, he falls in love with her, which what a commitment on her part. A thousand and one nights, that's like more than three years. Right. I mean, that's that's a lot of cliffhangers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of like, oh, you might not like this cliffhanger. I might die in the morning. <laughs> So, uh, as Sophie points out, she's one of history's greatest grifters, and I I love that. I think that's so true. I never thought of her that way until this this episode. Uh, so, Hardis in this point like flounces out, freaking out, about to go to to rehearsal, and Sophie, when she's alone with Nate, she kind of brings up that when thieves go to prison they kind of think of it as school and you often pick up a new trait or new skill uh and she asks him if you know he has anything to tell her about his time in prison and he just you know says something cryptic very cryptic and nate like and and then i think this is really telling he starts the metronome that's on the table uh, and i love like i I mean, I took band in junior high and high school, and I have never seen someone use a real uh, metronome like that. You have to oh, remember. I chorus, and yeah, I have, but I mean, thankfully, more is that this is a metronome, but now we don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, we have like little tiny electronic ones or like a bigger one, but of course Nate's going to have this old-fashioned one, which they're so cool, why wouldn't you want one? Uh, Hardison meets with the conductor, who's this very genial German man, <laughs> and the rest of the symphony. But uh, before they can start actually rehearsing, he fakes an emergency and just pieces out because he's like, "I can't, I can't do this in front of all these people." Yeah, and it, I'm going to say that it strained my credulity a little that the conductor was like, "Oh, it's fine. I've heard about you. I'm sure you can play this." And I was like, "That's not." It's like that's not how practice works. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
When you're practicing a bunch of people who've never played together, you don't be like, ugh, I'm sure you know your part. It'll be fine. And I'm sure you'll fit in perfectly. And right. yeah. Like everyone else, like your tempo will just match like work with ours. We won't have to resolve anything. Nope. Yeah. Nothing to do. We can just do this all live. <laughs> uh, and I just imagine the resentment from everybody else okay. who's like, oh, I gotta be here for a six hour rehearsal and you. You can just leave because your the mom broke a moped. String section must be just focused. Yeah, <laughs> and also like I've been here, I've paid my dues. This guy is just showing up out of nowhere, and that's another social media thing that you'd see. Like if this guy was a prodigy at the violin and he was just a cab driver in New York, you know he'd have like a YouTube video out there that had five million hits. Alas. Um. We got Parker eating cereal again, and she's working out the plan on paper because she's an old school thief, uh, and she needs to see how everything works. And I think they said in the commentary that the the plans that she's looking at are actually like the floor plans for the set. <laughs> so like, yeah. Sophie and Elliot are trying to get the passcode to get into the room where the vault is. Yes, uh, and. Elliot, when he goes in, he just a run in with Wally, the bodyguard, and he is just able to make out like the last couple or a few of the digits for the passcode, which means that Parker's gonna have to do all of the different permutations of what it could possibly be until she hits the right passcode, which is gonna be difficult. And because of how everything's set up, the easiest thing for her to do is, is going to be to blow a hole in the floor above the vault during the end of the piece when it's the loudest. But getting out would be impossible because of the, the president of this country is going to be there and there's going to be tons of secret service. So there's like no way they can get out if they get in in the first place. Parker and Harrison are like not sure it'll work. It would have to be just perfectly coordinated and Nate's like, you're gonna need a conductor. <laughs> it's me. I'm so excited. Yeah, and he just happens to have like a little conductor wand. Oh my god. You know it. See, he has he's a metronome, he has a conductor wand. I don't I don't wanna be inappropriate, but like, Nate, <laughs> why do you have these things? <laughs> like, is this like a weird role-playing thing that you've got going on? well be. Oh well my being. god. Yes. He loves control so much. Yes, that's true. That probably is his perfect fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, he should really talk to Sophie about this. It's very good to be all on the same page. So <laughs> Parker walks in on Hardison practicing his violin and he's very bad. And she does her best to get his adrenaline going, but it backfires a little. And he points out, like, if my adrenaline is high, I could, my giant hands could snap this priceless violin. But I just like that, you know, I tend to be sort of a, a person who finds um, 
the worst case scenario, like thinking through the worst case scenario, reassuring, like the worst case scenario is that, you know, like I trip and fall and actually everything's fine. I mean, in fairness, the worst case scenario here is that they all get arrested by the Secret Service and locked in jail for life and, you know, and the people of Wadada die. So admittedly, the worst case scenario, like the stakes are much higher, but yeah. like once you've laid out the stakes, you're like, all right, well, you know, like I could probably survive that. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, Curtison is such a such a sweet, soft boy that this is not really the right approach for him. Exactly. Um, and he's like, you're just freaking me out more. <laughs> and you know, Parker's just trying to help. Right. Like, and that's really she's, sweet. She is doing her best in her Parker way to, yeah. to help him lay out what's at stake. She's still, as we've said, not good at peopling yet. So she just doesn't know how to people. But no, I've read very little about this, but I've been told that that's kind of what you were saying about imagining the worst case scenario is kind of uh, something they use in cognitive behavioral therapy. So, you know, if you have a lot of anxiety about something, like go ahead and think about what's the worst thing that would happen and then what happens after that okay, the worst thing that's going to happen is that I'm going to trip and fall on my face in front of everybody. But what happens after that? Like, I don't die. I get up. I, like, laugh it off. Like, I go get a Band-Aid, and then I go on with my life, and nobody else remembers it the next day. So, like, working through, like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And then realizing, like, you know what? It's, it's, it would be awful in the moment, but it would not be the end of the world. But in this case, there are, like you said, a lot higher stakes than falling on your face. Yeah, that's why the rest of us with high anxiety do not go into um, you know, high stress jobs like thievery. I mean, we shouldn't. So the symphony hall like slowly fills up with people and Nate gets all set up to conduct the heist and he's so excited. He's like, I've got my laptop and I've got the score and I've got my baton. I'm so ready to go. Uh, then he gets a call from the Italian and she wants to meet him in the prop room, which ooh, like a little rendezvous. Oh, I read in the, the trivia about this episode that the all the stuff in the boxes and things in the prop room are from the science-icle. Yes! <laughs> from this very, very godparents job. Like, that's cute. It's really cute. I like it. Um, so she wants him to, because she knows they're going to break into the safe, she wants him to take something from one of the safes, uh, from the vault, and and replace it with something else. It's like a, like an accordion folder. And she tells him it's a link in the chain to get Damien Moreau. And, you know, she brings up her, you know, it's not classic yet, but it will get there, threat of, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to take out your team. They're, they're on the line. And he's not happy about this, but, you know, he takes it and he cues everyone to go once it's time. And like Hardison is doing pretty well at this point in the, you know, in the piece. Uh, I love this. Sophie takes this bag of equipment upstairs. We don't see what she's doing with it yet. Parker is trying to guess this entry code and Elliot <laughs> gets taken out by Namdi. <laughs> by Wally and 
like literally just runs at him like he is on the football field and apparently Christian Kane actually took that hit and like went flying against a wall he was like yes let's get this football player going because <laughs> he played football too you know like you do um, and then Parker gets thrown by this guy but then Elliot comes back and you know takes care of him sort of they, they get him at least into the middle of this ring of explosive that Parker has set down on the floor and just uh, you know they get him right in the middle of the circle just as Nate tells them to blow the floor and so he falls through doesn't doesn't die because leverage doesn't kill people too often yeah there are apparently explosives that only work on Smith yeah <laughs> so they blow through the floor but everybody <laughs> standing in the middle of them is totally fine so, yeah and, and people who fell through like 10 feet down to the ground without covered work. in cement like big chunks no they're totally fine, they're totally fine. yeah their, their suit's a little dirty but the what are you gonna dusty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Parker is, you know, jumps down uh, with Elliot, and they're they're she's getting the diamonds out of the safe, and Nate jumps down beside her, and she, he gets her to open up one of the other doors in the safe. Oh, I liked this that they were all named after different musical terms, allegro and uh, legato, and fun things like that. That was very that was very geeky. Uh, but then, like, as they're in, you know, Elliot's pulling Wally kind of out of the way and putting him in the corner. And as they're in the middle of this heist, Hardison stands up and he starts to play his solo. And he's freaking out right before he starts it. But Sophie's just smiling at him, just so confident that he's going to do this totally fine. And just the sound of him playing this solo, I guess, goes everywhere in the whole building and every you know, Nate and Elliot and Parker just stop in their tracks and Parker's crying and they're just like, they're all like in this trance and then the minute he stops, the motion sensors come back on and then they go off because they were in there and they're trapped. So Sophie tells them to stall uh, and Moto, you know, has found out that there's been a breach and he goes and through some context clues, we figure out that his brother, he told his brother, you don't have to come. I'll take care of this. But he follows him anyways. And when they get down there before they can be arrested or taken off, Nate is like weaving. I, I wrote Nate weaves a tale worthy of Scheherazade. And, he, you know, he says, you know, we broke in for this file and because he's holding the file that the Italian wanted him to get. And he just bluffs about what's in the file and implies that he's with the CIA and you don't cross the CIA and uh, this is enough, even though Moto is denying it, this is enough for his brother to be like, I knew it, I trusted you and I suspected that you were doing this behind my back and all this stuff and the Secret Service comes in and says that they found a rifle in the projection room with a clear print of the bodyguard Wally on, on the scope uh, which is when Sophie brought in some camera equipment earlier in the day. And he's, um, I love like Wally, like when he wakes up, he's like ready to go again. Like he just wants to fight Elliot so bad. And Elliot's like, come on, let's go. So, and it's, he's so good that they were saying in the commentary, they're like, we should really bring him back. He's great. 
but they, you know, Moto is taken away, just screaming, denying. I love when the the evil people just crumple at the end and they're like, no, I would have gotten away for it too if it hadn't been for you meddling kids. And it's just, mwah, it's chef's kiss. It's wonderful. So Nate gives the Italian the envelope and it's he's hasn't opened it because he says that's, that's against the law. You're not supposed to open people's mail. Just hilarious for a, an avowed bad guy. Uh, but he knows that this envelope isn't about Moreau, because if it was, she would have given it to them to use against him. And instead, he's he's sure that it's about her. And he tells her that he doesn't want to... He would he, he doesn't want her playing them like that again. Like, we're not friends. Like, you, you can't do this to me. And she looks a little taken aback. She's like, okay, this guy's got my number. I can't manipulate them like this all the time and uh, we go back and we see Jane and she's just psyched that Moto is in jail even though they, they talk about how it's not going to stick because uh, you know they're the CIA is going to be like no that, that wasn't us <laughs> I don't know who that was and you know he didn't actually want to kill his brother and but it was enough for them to get a search warrant for his vault which showed all the smuggled diamonds and it's basically just going to ensure that he's never going to be president of Wadada. And then they give her this check for $500,000 which is not the cost of a Stradivarius <laughs> at really all. Isn't. It's really like mm, 400 million or $4 million is missing from this price. Uh... So they pocketed a pretty penny there. Uh, but I love that at first she's like, I can't take this. This is like the dirty blood diamond money. And they're like, oh, no, this is from us selling the Strad, which was paid for with dirty blood diamond, blood diamond money. Diamond but okay. Um, <laughs> only a degree of separation. <laughs> That's laundering. Is that not? <laughs> it's basically money laundering, yeah. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Nate goes off and Elliot tells her that he wishes it was more like that they had given more money for her to, to open a music school or whatever she's going to do with it but she's she tells him you know small acts can have ripple effects and you, you can see he's kind of touched like that by that I like that um I also felt that like the whole way that Nate was like oh this was all Elliot's idea and then he smiled and left like it seemed like Nate was acting as the matchmaker which is not usually <laughs> thing that Nate does to help <laughs> no, like, and also, like, Elliot doesn't need matchmaking help. Elliot, I mean, well, I think Elliot actually does, but <laughs> I think Elliot doesn't think he does. And no. I think normally, Elliot would have been a little insulted to be given yeah. obvious help, but, yeah. They said in the commentary that uh, Timothy Hutton ad-libbed that part. Oh. So maybe it was Timothy Hutton trying to matchmake. It's true. Um, I don't like it when he like gives ladies the elevator eyes. Um, my like headcanon for this is that uh, you know they give they only give her five hundred thousand dollars, but I don't think that they sold the Stradivarius. I think Hardison kept it. Oh, well, yeah. No, I believe that. Yeah. 
And I wonder if he'll like, you know, say, oh, I'm gonna play again. But maybe, maybe not really. Because we see Hardison at the at the bar and he's still riding high on this his success and he's so impressed with himself and he doesn't really know how he did it. And Parker's trying to figure out how he faked it. And he says, you know, I just let it rip. Like I just did it. I don't know where it came from. And then Nate admits that, oh, I know how you did it. I hypnotized you. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, we've seen little things. You know, we flash back to different things that he was doing in the episode that kind of implied that he was doing this. And Sophie fesses up that she identified Hardison as a candidate for this. And I wonder the timeline for that. Because Sophie, you know, asks Nate about what skills he picked up in prison. So she doesn't know for sure that he can do this or did do this. And he tells her, you know, you said it yourself, he's he's the only candidate, or he's like the best candidate. So I wonder if this was like a conversation they had in a, you know, further back in the past. Just yeah, I feel like it's the kind career. of thing that, you know, if, I mean, if we're assuming that they learned this in person, then that seems like something he would have asked about pretty quickly. Even yeah. It's cold. That is a cold thing to do. It's very cold. Well, and I felt for Hardison because I feel like Nate has absolutely, um, you know, been ruthless like this before, but usually it is Nate doing it on his own and the rest of them telling him he's crossed the line. And the fact that Sophie was involved, I think, makes it a little more hurtful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that two members of the team agree Mom, with dad. acceptable behavior. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, and usually like when Nate is going to manipulate them, he does it to them all as a whole. Right. And this is just singling out Hardison with whom he has the most like fatherly relationship with. Yeah. Um, whether he wants it to be that way or not. Uh, yeah. And it's 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 rough. Harson says, like, that's what you do to a mark. You don't do that to someone on your crew. And then Nate says, that's exactly what you do. You push whatever button is necessary to get them to do what needs to be done. And he says, that's the quality that you don't have. That's what's missing. That's why you can't do what I do. Which is like, ugh. I would leave too. <laughs> Which is what Hardison does. And Parker, just like right after she doesn't even look at Sophie. Like, she doesn't look at either of them. She just puts her drink down and leaves. It's awful. <laughs> and, and, you know, when Sophie... I don't think... I don't know if she knew right away that he was doing it. She must have figured it out, though. But, you know, she kind of has the last line. She says, alone again. If I didn't know you better, I'd think you'd like it like that. You know? Which implies that he doesn't want to be alone. But he can't stop himself from like you said, doing whatever it takes to get people to do what they need to do to get the job done. Ugh. That's just heavy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, you know, like a lot of this season is sort of, I mean, Nate has supposedly accepted his himself as, you know, a thief, even if he's thieving for all the right reasons, but he's still clearly doesn't think that he 
deserves family. Yeah. And yeah, and if you think you don't deserve the people who are trying to be your family, you're going to try to push them away. Right. Yeah. Because I'm sure Hardison would have been like, yeah, I don't believe in hypnosis, but if you think you can hypnotize me enough to give me confidence that I had when I was 14, like, go for it. Because Hardison's up for anything. Right. <laughs> like, anything. He's a weirdo. Well, the other thing, too, is if he had gone to Hardison and said, I can hypnotize you so you can play it, um, Hardison might have literally just believed that. Yes! <laughs> right? He probably wouldn't have even had to actually hypnotize him. Just pep him, like, give him a pep talk. I, yeah. I think that's that's a really big part of it, is he didn't have to do that, but he thought he had to do that. Because he doesn't well, I, think... Right, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think he literally... I mean, I think there is a little to that... I don't think I'm over-interpreting to say that I think it's intentional that Nate is choosing the choice that makes him look the worst to the rest of the team. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm going to be a thief, I'm going to... going to be bad all the way. <laughs> Nate, Why? Just go to therapy. Just talk to somebody. Well. Not just a bottle. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Any last thoughts on the episode? Yeah, I think that's it. Do you have anything to talk about for a heist light? Life's well, sort of an odd one. Um, I was reading um, an author bio and they mentioned in their author bio that they were one of the people who unmasked someone who I hadn't heard of so I googled and found out that it was um, some teenager you know in the early days of social media <laughs> again, um, who had been you know apparently been deathly ill and then uh, you know like had a post had gone up that she had died and it turned out she had never really been that ill and she had not died whoa um, and that got me down the rabbit hole of other <laughs> people who had faked their death um, and I am also a knitter and there is a social media just for people who love yarn Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in the early days of Ravelry um, there was an epic thread that started because there was a yarn company where this woman had been dyeing yarn um, in fun colors and selling it on eBay of all places. Um, and um, she started getting, I think, just popular enough, or I don't, maybe she was bored of it. I don't, whatever happened, but the ratings started to go down that you know things really shifted or the dye hadn't set and people you know soaked it and the color came out and people were asking for refunds and things spiraled out of control and then she posted that she was super ill and she was behind on everything but she had family helping her and then someone posted that she had died um and so everyone was like you know sort of like sad but also maybe mad that they maybe weren't going to get their refund at you know, <laughs> next to yeah. yeah, trying to be like 
Um, and then it turned out she lived in a very small town and somebody else who lived in that town was on Ravelry and was like, I saw her at the post office yesterday. She's super not dead. Oh, <laughs> oh man. So the internet is big, but the world is small. Right? Oh man. Turns out that social media connecting people who know things together, you know, can work in many different ways. Um, so yeah, so not really a super con artisty heist, more a probably much more likely to be a person who gets in over their head and then just tries. Yeah, what's well, making their death? It's the easiest way to get out of this. <laughs> wow! 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 <sighs> and then did she? How do you like think through that? Like, okay, I have faked my death and now I must delete or never use again any of my social media. Like, the idea of me trying, like, of me personally trying to erase my social footprint on the internet, like, I could never do it. Yeah. <laughs> random accounts I've started in different places. Like, wow. But I guess, I mean, you could just stop using those things and get new ones under different names. Although I also think, I mean, I think nowadays, you know, it gets increasingly harder because, like, you know, you can open a new Instagram and then Instagram will immediately be like, oh, do you want us to link both accounts together? <laughs> You're like, no. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Gotta get a new phone. <laughs> like, yeah. That's true. Hmm. Don't fake your death, people. Unless you're really good at it. Unless you are Archie Leach from the, the previous episode of Leverage. <laughs> and nobody believed that anyways, so. Okay, so I have a high slight that is sort of related to this episode. So have you ever heard of the Suzuki method of learning a musical instrument? Okay, so I like I knew a little bit about it. Like it, I had heard of it before. So it's a for those of you who don't know, it is a method of or philosophy about learning music. Uh, it started by a Japanese violinist named Shinichi Suzuki, who was born in 1898, and you know his this method like. According to Wikipedia, aims to create an environment for learning music which parallels the linguistic environment of acquiring a native language. So it, you know, the philosophy is kind of, you should be saturated in the musical community, you should go to, like, attend classical music concerts, you should, um, you know, you shouldn't have to audition before you begin studying, you've got to, you got to start playing at a really young age, uh, using really good teachers, like, it's a lot of stuff that seems pretty obvious you know pretty good uh, and but it's you learn music by ear rather than by learning to read music and there's a lot of memorization and stuff and it's just like get and play together and like get instruments in little kids hands as quickly as possible so it has been used all over the world like thousands and thousands and thousands of people have learned instruments through the suzuki method but it came out a couple of years ago that uh uh, Shinichi Suzuki uh, could possibly have been a fraud. <laughs> so he, yeah, he claimed to have been a friend of Albert Einstein, 
and that uh, he played under Carl. Oh no, I had this. Have the articles open? Hang on. This dude like went into this cra- crazy uh, rabbit hole where he like found all these uh, like un- primary documents and stuff. But um, so a violinist named Mark O'Connor has a blog, and he posted um, the, asserting that Suzuki made up one of the key chapters in his life story. So, normally that he spent eight years in the 1920s studying with renowned teacher Carl Klinger at the Berlin Conservatory. Uh, during that period, according to Suzuki's biography, he played chamber music with Albert Einstein, who helped inspire his revolutionary teaching methods. And basically, O'Connor just says, I think it, it's all a lie. Like, he said he did this, and then his biographers didn't bother to look into it and research it, and they just printed it as truth in his biography. And he, like, went in uh, and, like, went back to, like, the audition roles and he found out that he had no violin training from any serious violin teacher that they can find. He was basically self-taught, which is pretty cool. Uh, and he began playing at the age of 18. And he did audition at the, the conservatory in Berlin, but he was rejected. Um, like at age 24, which if he started playing when he was 18 and he's like 24, that's like... He'd only been playing for like six years, and he wants to go play at this big conservatory. Uh, so he, you know, may have been a complete fraud, which just reminds me of, you know, Professor Harold Harold Hill in the Music Man, which you know predates this blog post. But I thought I think that's fascinating when, and he's he was long dead, like he died in 1998. But, you know, he could have been this complete fraud, but so many people have learned violin and everything from this method. Which, does that make him a bad person? I don't know. Well, it almost seems like maybe he sort of, like, retconned the way he should have learned it. Like, if he didn't start until he was 18, and he was like, well, obviously the reason I got rejected is because I didn't start when I was six, and I wasn't surrounded constantly by classical music so that I could pick up the you know, the vibe I need to truly understand deep in my soul. Yeah. But then couldn't you just say, like, oh, you know, it was... I didn't start this until I was 18. It's my passion now. I'm all self-taught, but I can only imagine how good I would have been if I somebody had put this in my hand when I was three. Like, I think that... But, I mean, that might have been a different time. Well, and I remember talking to someone, and I imagine this is true of a lot of instruments, and they were saying that, like, the issue that they really found is that you just have... You can't take breaks. Like, you can't be like, okay, I'm going to do violin for three months out of the year, and then for, like, nine months, I'm not going to. You really, like, the amount that you lose without sort of constant practice is a lot. And they were like, and so the thing is, in many cases, that you're just like, I can't, I don't want to have to do this. Yeah. I don't want to practice this every day. 360 days out of the year. Like, I want want something that I can do some of the time. (laughs) And be pretty good at. Yeah. And, you know, that's 
That's how it is with like every single skill, right? If you, you know, are learning a foreign language, you have to study it, you have to practice it every day, or you you're gonna lose it. If you want to be good at drawing, you have to do it regularly. Writing, you know, reading. We're kind of big on you need to read at least twenty minutes a day. It really helps your vocabulary. You get higher test scores. You go to college, like. <laughs> And that goes definitely for something as difficult as playing the violin. Thank you for coming on. Tara, tell us where people can find you on the internet. I am often on Twitter, <laughs> multiple times a day, um, at, at Tara TLK. So T A R A T L K. Awesome. And I'm also, I think saying several times a day would be a vast understatement. Uh, <laughs> And on Twitter almost all the time uh, at Librarian Stee. And you won't see us again, but you'll hear us again in two weeks. We're going to be talking about the double blind job, which, yes, if you hate pharmaceutical companies, join us. <laughs> this will make you hate them more. Yes. It just, mm, it's all justified. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. Which you were talking about Venice earlier, and you know, I feel like violins are very Venice, like very Vivaldi, and it might be because I was obsessed with this series called, oh gosh, it was like Classical Kids. This it was a series of like radio plays about famous composers, and my favorite one was Vivaldi's Ring of Mystery, and it took place in Venice, and it was about a. a mysterious uh, broken Stradivarius violin and an orphan and a duke and Antonio Favaldi was there. It does sound like a very Venice story. We definitely mm-hmm. heard a lot of like weird like and then somebody bought this house and put lions in it. I have so many questions. Like I don't even know how you get lions. You're like here. wait stop stop go back to the lion. <laughs> and they were like yeah I don't know how they got the lions here and I was like that's the most important question. How has nobody asked this before? It's a good thing they didn't get tigers because tigers love swimming so they'd run out of there. You would just I mean they tried tigers and then the tigers <laughs> <swim> away. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.